Um, hey, if you've got your Bibles, you should. You need to know that I'm not making this stuff up. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, if you've got your own Bible, uh, I'm sure you know where that is. If you're getting one from the church, it's page 670. I checked to make it as easy as possible. We've got a lot to get through tonight, so we're just going to get there as fast as possible. So, For those of you that are new, we never stay past about 10, okay? And so just hope you don't have to be anywhere. Oh, yeah, small series just, you know, on what's true and what's false. If we haven't met, my name's Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. I'm an assistant pastor. I'm actually not on staff, so I got a full-time job. I um, work out in the secular world, but on Sunday nights, um, co-teach with Pastor Zach, who's got the backwards hat, is taking chill to a whole new level in church. So it's cool. The Jews did the hat thing the whole time anyway, so it didn't matter. So... um, yeah, so excited to see some new faces. Um, perhaps you're here for the series. Perhaps you're not. You didn't know, and um, you might be a little shocked. But we're kicking off a new series called True Gospel. It's going to be four weeks. Um, Zach and I don't really tend to soften things too much, so it's about cults. Okay? It's about cults. Um, but more so than that, it's about what's true, not necessarily just bashing what's false. Okay? And so, again, if you've got your Bibles, Second Corinthians chapter... 11, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. Sound good? All right. Four of you think it sounds good. Here we go. God, we just, uh, as Zach and I prayed before, um, would you not allow me to make tonight about being right? Tonight is not about me, it's not about Christians, it's not about this church being right. Jesus, it's about you being true. And so would you discard any ego, any presupposition that wants to come in here and simply fascinate on what's false? But I pray that our hearts are restored and that we want to glorify what's true. And so that's my heart as we kick off this series. I pray that that's the heart, that's the work that you do in the hearts of your people. Not that we simply come to expose what is false, but that we come to truly learn and grapple with and wrestle with and hopefully believe what is true. And so, Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can take this sermon and embed it into the hearts of your people. And so we ask that you do that. Jesus, may everything that comes from me be discarded, but everything that comes from you, would that be sunken into our hearts, believed and trusted so that you may receive all the glory in the end, and no one here remembers our names. And so, Jesus, would you be high and lifted up in this time? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The Bible says that Jesus came preaching and teaching. And so, Zach and I as pastors are called to be both preachers and teachers. And there is a difference. And so, I just wanted to kind of set set the tone for this series by saying that this series is going to be far more in the bucket of teaching than preaching. Does that make sense? Because look, Zach and I can get you riled up, and we get riled up. Why? Because we're excited about the gospel. We're excited about God's truth, what he reveals, how he just lops us around all week before we get to the pulpit. We love preaching, and there'll be preaching in in this series for sure. But as Zach and I were discussing, this is certainly one of those series that when it comes to preaching and teaching, it will be heavier on the teaching. Most of you, if you've come and you've seen me teach, you know that I rarely even look at my notes. I'm going to be pretty focused on a lot of my notes. And, and, and as I said before, this is not about me being right. This is not about us being right. It's not about you being right. It's not about the church or God speak being right as much as it is about Jesus being true. We want to focus on the positive, not just simply focus and fascinate and on the rejection of the false. And so it's going to be heavy on the teaching, okay? And, and if you don't know, if you're here and you're like, what on earth are we doing? We're going to be taking a look at four groups of people, specifically in America, because that's our context, that claim to be Christian, but are not but are not. And here's where we get this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, take a look at this. Paul knew this would happen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. 
Man penned it. Some of you showed up thinking that men wrote the Bible. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the Holy Spirit authors and interprets Scripture. He simply used man to pen it. So when we read this, we're not reading Paul as much as we are hearing from God himself. God knew this would happen. And so as Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, in this second letter to this church at Corinth, he spends a lot of time doing two major things. One is defending his apostleship. Remember, Paul was called by Jesus himself from heaven to be an apostle. And he faced a lot of opposition. And so a lot of the book is is defending his apostleship. The other part of the book is letting loose on false doctrine and false teachers. And he comes to chapter 11 and he says this, he says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Okay. And it's just an old school way of saying, look, it's kind of a joke that I'm still have to defend my apostleship. Would you just entertain the fact that I've got to defend this because I've got people that are opposed to my authority as a Jesus-called apostle? And so he just says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. He knew that the church understood that. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. See, he cared about the church so much that it felt like jealousy to him. And the Bible tells us that God is jealous for us too. Okay? Jealousy is not intrinsically wrong. It's the intent and the purpose behind it that can be wrong. God loves us with a jealous love. He wants what's best for us jealously. Paul says, I want what's best for you jealously. So Zach and my call in this sermon series is to be passionately jealous for you. And then in that jealousy, deliver the truth. Because we care about you. We love you. Some of you haven't even met yet and we love you. And so he says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. That's a good jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. It's a little weird for the guys to hear that, right? Like I don't like the whole bridal paradigm. I don't like being the bride in this whole thing. Dresses and aisles and stuff, no, right? But he says, look, as the church, the Bible calls God's church, Jesus's church, his bride, it's his epic bridal paradigm. It's one of the constant meta-narratives through the whole Bible, relating Jesus as the perfect husband and us, his bride. Old Testament, New Testament, it's constant. And so Paul is saying, look, I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin, virgin to Christ, so Paul's jealous for them. And verse three says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. We'll go into that. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity. Everyone say simplicity. See, some of you don't want to get involved in doctrine and theology because you think it's crazy complex. And I'll give you this, many people make it complex. But Paul says, I am jealous for you. And he fears that there is an overcomplication that's taking place in the church. That steers us away from just the raw, foundational, glorious simplicity of Jesus. Glorious Look, tonight, I could go through roughly 400 bullet points on each of these main ideas that we're going to present. I'm going to go with three. Just the simplicity, the raw, sheer simplicity. He says that you may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's deep and it's wide, but ultimately, it's quite simple at times. This faith, sometimes it's almost too simple that people feel the need to add to it. And so he says, you may be, your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now check this out. He's going to set a precedent. Verse four, he says, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, say another Jesus, another Jesus, So suddenly just talking about Jesus isn't enough. He says, some will come preaching another Jesus. 
whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit, say different spirit. It's not just enough to talk about being spiritual. There's something very specific. He says, which you have not received. So if someone preaches another Jesus, a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, say different gospel. See, some of us, even in the church, we forget that there are tons of gospels. I'm in the secular world. I show up at work tomorrow morning and I have to live and contend with the gospel that is business. That business is life. That business saves. That business heals you. That business makes you better. Some of you are contending with with the sex gospel. That sex is ultimately what will fulfill you. The relationship gospel. That relationships will ultimately fulfill you. That's why you just need to get to the altar fast. You're contending with gospels left and right. And Paul says there are different gospels. There is a different Jesus that will be preached. And so a different or another Jesus, a different spirit or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. This all begins in the garden. This all begins in the garden. He references the serpent. In the beginning, God created. That's Genesis 1.1. He created everything and it was perfect. He created man, except one thing wasn't perfect. Anyone know what that was? That man was alone. Have you ever noticed that guys get in trouble when they're by themselves? Okay. He says, I'm going to make a helper for you. Why? Anyone notice that men need help? Okay. It's not a derogatory term, ladies. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as our helper. It's not a derogatory term. It's a divine term. I'm not just his helper, Right? You are his co-heir in the kingdom, co-heir in eternity as as the, the wife, okay? So in the beginning, God created, everything was epic, except that Adam was alone, which we get, we understand. Dudes are like, I don't, I don't see it. I don't get the, I'm pretty awesome when I'm by myself. You're not. You need a lot of help. That's why God gave you a mom first, I pray. He's going to give you a wife at some point, I pray, because you need help, gentlemen, And so that was the only thing. And then so God created Adam and Eve and everything was epic. And two chapters later, we screwed the whole thing up. It doesn't take long, right? Have you ever noticed that when you wake up, it takes about two seconds to screw the whole thing up. Have you noticed that? You step out of bed and you cuss, right? (laughs) Monday, right? (laughs) Oh, that didn't take long. Just woke up, homie, right? Like It only took two chapters for us to screw up everything God created. It sounds like this. It says, In Genesis 3, 1 through 5, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And we know elsewhere that Satan came as a serpent. We're talking about Satan here. And Satan is whom, real fast? Satan is what? He's a fallen angel. Fallen angel. God didn't create demons. God created angels, and then angels rebelled against God, picked a fight with God, no surprise, lost their fight with God, and got kicked out of heaven. And so a third of the angelic realm was cast out of heaven and became demons. They're fallen angels, powerful, amazing creatures. Amazing creatures. And so Satan, the head chief demon, comes into the garden. Adam and Eve are there in perfect fellowship with God. And says he was more cunning than any beast of the field. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, that's what he loves to do, he loves to question God's word. He loves to question God's word. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it. That is what God said. Don't eat that. But then Eve adds to what God said. nor shall you touch it. God never said that. God never said that. It sets the tone for sin to enter, for a false gospel to enter, for a false Messiah to enter, when we begin adding to what God has said. And so Eve adds to it. By the way, ladies, this is not all your fault. Okay? Notice what Adam was doing during this whole thing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. 
It's a joke. His wife's talking to a snake and he's just standing there taking it. Kill the snake, gentlemen. Okay? We got that? Your wife, girlfriend's talking to a snake? Kill the snake. Okay? He says, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now now the serpent wants to wedge his own theology in there. You're not going to die. In fact, for God knows that in the day you eat it, you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll see stuff that that God didn't want you to see. You're going to know things that just other people don't know. He says this, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. That's where all sin begins. When we say, I get to be God. That's how sin entered the world. Say, look, maybe the Bible says that sex is only for marriage, but I get to be God in this relationship. I'll decide. Look, it says that I'm not to gossip. I'm not to be angry. I'm not to be, oh, you take a look at all the, the prohibitions. You say, but you know what? I'll, I'll deal with some of these, but not the, why? Because I get to be God. We take Jesus off his throne and we say, I'll make the decisions. And we do it every day in the church, out of the church. Christians do it. Non-Christians do it. Atheists do it. We all do it. We say, Jesus, off your throne. I'll take it from here. And it's devastating. It's devastating. And so we see that Eve added to God's word. Satan wiggles in his false theology. All threaded with the idea that we will be like God. And ever since then, there's been false messiahs and there's been false gospels. And tonight we start a series on the true gospel. And just as Paul exhorted us, saying if anyone preaches another Jesus or a different gospel, that's how we're going to break everything down. Perhaps some of you are here because you want to respond to questions. You want to engage someone that's in one of these groups. That's awesome. But first and foremost, we have to be equipped with the truth before we can combat lies. On a simple level, this isn't going to be overcomplicated. We could spend a year talking about this. And so some background. And look, tonight's Mormonism. I am going to say almost nothing about Mormonism apart from direct quotes from their own texts. It's not for me to get up here and just spout off why I don't believe this, that, and the other is right. It's not for me to quote other Christian pastors on why Mormonism is wrong. I am simply going to pull the text from the Mormon publications themselves and deal with them on a biblical basis. Sound fair? So when you see me here and you see all these citations... That's my purpose. That's my purpose. So when it comes to that, you'll see me be here on the Mormon speak, and you'll see me come full throttle when we get to the true Jesus and the true gospel, and I'll be out here. Because I live and breathe that stuff. But I want to stick to what Mormons say about their own theology, not what I have to say about it. Make sense? Sound fair? Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints claims to be the restoration of the true gospel and revelation of God in modern times. Founded by a guy by the name of Joseph Smith Jr., born December 23rd, 1805. It's a very, very recent, very, very modern religion. And Joseph was disturbed by all the Christian denominations. How many of you felt that? In your heart, you can raise your hand in your heart, just kind of, it's kind of, it kind of annoys me that everyone seems so fractured. Look, it annoys us pastors too. We've got a senior pastor very focused on unity among the churches in this area, and I love that. Joseph Smith was very disturbed by all the denominations that were popping up of all the Christian churches. And he claims that in 19, or 1820, at the age of 14, he went into the woods. God the Father and Jesus showed up to discuss with him this issue. God the Father... 
and Jesus showed up to him in the woods and say, don't join any of them. Don't join any of them. And then three years later, 17 years old, the claim is that an angel called Moroni, or Moroni, who was supposed to be the son of Mormon, let me get this right, the leader of the people called the Nephites, who had lived, according to Mormons, in the Americas, appeared to him and told him that he had been chosen to translate the Book of Mormon, which was, compo- which was compiled by Moroni's father around the 4th century. The book was written on golden plates, hidden near where Joseph was living in New York. Joseph Smith said that on September 22nd, 1827, he received the plates. The angel Moroni instructed him to begin the translation process. The translation was published in 1830, that's when the church was founded, 1830, as the Book of Mormon. Joseph claimed that during the translation process, John the Baptist appeared to him and ordained him. There's a reason he chose John the Baptist. John the Baptist appeared to him and ordained him to accomplish the divine work of restoring the true church by preaching the true gospel, which allegedly had been lost from earth. Today, Mormonism comprises of no less than 15.3 million members. About 29,600 congregations. Boasting 85,147 missionaries currently. 85,147 missionaries currently. Now, a note before we jump all into this. We need to know where their theology comes from. Do we not? Four places. The first, the Bible. This is where it gets tricky. The Bible. How on earth can they? I'll show you how they can. The Bible, they believe in the same 66 books, same two testaments that we believe in. Okay? Bible. And I'll tell you this. Grant, who's been a member of the Mormon church for 16 years, okay, who I've been working with, on his process of pulling out, okay? We even had some fun text messages about if we needed to head over to the temple and talk to some people, right? Cool stuff. He gives them my cell phone and they never call me. I'm not sure why. Okay, and so Grant gave me gospel principles. And it's tough for me to stomach the cover alone. Published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is one of their publications from their library, from their elders, from their apostles, I'm not making up a single thing I'm about to read to you. You can all see exactly what I'm going to read to you in chapter 10, which is where they get their scriptures. Called Gospel Principles, chapter 10, the Mormon scriptures of the Bible. But in the Articles of Faith, 1, 8. Articles of Faith, 1, colon, 8. And if any of you want these notes when we're done with this, just call me, I'll email them to you. Okay, just come up, or call me. Come up here, give me your email. We'll do a whole thing. If you want all these references, I'm going to reference everything I say. They say this in the Articles of Faith. We believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Ah. See, now you you need to go to them for the translation. The Bible declares that the Holy Spirit provides the interpretation for his people. So, Zach and my business up here is not interpreting the Bible for you. It's being submitted to the Holy Spirit who interprets it for us, and then we just gush what he's taught us. Our job is not to interpret the Bible, it's to be submitted to the one who does. And so they say, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly, Articles of Faith 1.8. That's the first source of scripture. Second, the Book of Mormon, as we read about in the background. From the book, no words from Mark. The Book of Mormon is a sacred record of some of the people who lived on the American continents between about 2000 BC and AD 400. It contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See Doctrine and Covenant 29 and some other verses. We'll get to that one. The book of, the, of Mormon tells of the visit Jesus Christ made to the people on, in the Americas soon after his resurrection. Joseph Smith translated the book of Mormon into English through the gift and the power of God. He said that it is, quote, the most correct of any book on earth. Supersedes. Supersedes. The most correct book 
on earth and is the keystone to our religion. And that a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts more than any other book. And you can read that in the introduction to the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith himself. So we've got the Bible. As long as it's interpreted correctly. We've got the Book of Mormon, which is the most correct book on the face of the planet. We have what's known as the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrines and Covenants, which is a collection of modern revelations. In section one of Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord reveals that the book is published to the inhabitants of the earth, preparing them for his coming. The book contains revelations regarding the church of Jesus Christ as it has been restored in these last days. Sections of the book also explain the organization of the church and the organizational leadership. Other sections, they claim, contain glorious truths that were lost to the world for hundreds of years and prophecies of that which is to come. So we've got the Bible, we've got the Book of Mormon, we've got Doctrines and Covenants, and we have what's known, the fourth one is the Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price is a book that contains the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, and some inspired writings of Joseph Smith. It clarifies doctrines and teachings that were lost from the Bible and gives added information concerning the creation of the earth. All of that that I just said is straight out of here. Okay? A couple quick notes on Joseph Smith himself as we get into the true gospel. He claims to have seen God the Father. Right off the bat, there's issues with the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God the Father, who alone has immortality, dwelling, dwells in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Now, some of you think back to the Old Testament, like, wait a minute, didn't like Moses see God? Wasn't there, didn't God open up heaven in the Old Testament? He absolutely did. And who people saw was the pre-incarnate son of God. That's Jesus. Always revealing himself. Not God the Father. Jesus alone himself said in John 6.46, not that anyone has seen the Father. Anyone. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except me. Of course Jesus has. Of course the Holy Spirit has. No one has seen the Father except me, Jesus says. Joseph Smith claims to have done more to keep the church together than Jesus himself. I'm simply going to read a quote from Joseph Smith himself in what's known as the Address of the Prophet. It's, it's when he gave his testimony to the dissenters at Nauvoo after reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11. After reading the chapter we just began, he said this to people that were dissenting from his church. God is in the still small voice and all the affidavits indictments. It is all the devil, all corruption. Come on, ye prosecutors, ye false swearers. All hell boil over. Ye burning mountains, roll down your lava for I will come out of the top at last. I have more to boast of than any, than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep the whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me, he said. Check this out. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran from him. But the Latter-day Saints have never run away from me yet. Now, I watched a video online of a Christian apologist debating on the street with a Mormon and said, Joseph Smith said he did more for the church than Jesus. This could have been the one guy. He said, no, he didn't. He pulled out History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 408 and 409. He said, could you read the underlying statement? I looked at it closed it. So what are you doing? All I'm doing is reading your stuff. He, he, look, all I know is that I believe, he said, hold on. 
let's deal with some of the stuff you're saying. Joseph Smith said he did more for the church than Jesus. Look, all that I know is that I, and the guy pressed him. That's all I'm going to do here. I simply open up the words of the theology of the Mormon and show you how the Bible presents something much better. And this last point on Joseph Smith, he claims to be a prophet with new word from God. And he chose John the Baptist to call him because I do believe he was a student in the Bible. And he knew that in Luke 16, 15 through 16, Jesus himself said this. There's only one way you can connect this with the Book of Mormon, with their other doctrine. It's by taking the words of Jesus and drawing a line where it doesn't exist. And it sounds like this, Luke 16, 15 through 16. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in sight of the God. And then Jesus says this, check this out. Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Jesus says, after John the Baptist, there's no more prophets. Jesus himself says, it's over. I'm here now. John baptized me. I'm the consummation. I am, I am the crux of all history. There's something happened like 200 or 2015 years ago. Could we all agree? Like some, there's a reason we're like in 2015. Something happened about 2015 years ago that changed the course of human history so much that we changed our entire calendar system. Jesus says, all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament were until John the Baptist. So Joseph Smith says, well, well, then it was John the Baptist who commissioned me to do this. He was smart in that regard. But it doesn't negate Jesus' words so they stopped there. So anyone that claims to be a prophet is not a capital P prophet in any means. Jesus says, it ended with John the Baptist. And so again, keep in mind these two things. I'm going to do a little bit of a PowerPoint exercise, but I want to keep it simple. We're going to take a look at two things. We're going to take a look at Jesus, and we're going to take a look at the gospel. And in each one, there's going to be two parts. What's false about their claims about Jesus and what's true. And with the gospel, what's false about their claims about the gospel and what's true. But only three each. We don't have time. Or we would be here till 2017. And so we're going to begin by taking a look. Oh, Dave, I didn't turn it on. It's not your fault. I'm going to give you all the answers now. The A students are already scribbling, right? A students are already, I got it. I got it. Two columns. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> we're going to take a look at Jesus. We're going to take a look at the gospel. And so when, when Paul urges us to not accept another Jesus or a different gospel, this is how this plays out. The Church of Latter-day Saints would purport to you that Jesus is one of many gods. Now, as Christians, we believe in one true God in three persons. It's not unreasonable that we can't necessarily exactly understand how that works, but the Bible says it is clear. If we could understand exactly how what's known as the hypostatic union worked, we probably would be God. So it is a little tough and all analogies fail over time. I'm not going to do it. But we see throughout the course of the Bible that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal in their divinity. Three separate beings, three separate persons, not even spiritual forces. Three separate persons in one true God. Mormons will have you believe that Jesus is one of many gods, and that's a false gospel. It says in Doctrines and Covenants 130, I guess verse 22, God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. It says in Mormon Doctrine, page 321, written by Joseph Smith himself, that God used to be a man on another planet. He became a God by following the laws and ordinances of the God on that world. So there was a God that preceded God the Father. That was before God the Father on a different world. So God wasn't even eternal. The heavenly father that they, they very eloquently sometimes can speak about as a loving heavenly father is not even eternal. So he says that he became a God following the laws and ordinances of the God from that world and brought one of his wives to the world with whom he produced spirit children who then inhabit human bodies at birth. The first spirit child to be born was Jesus. So God the father 
became a god on another planet, came to another planet, brought his wife, had spirit children, the first of which is Jesus. Now, Mormons disagree on the second. Some believe the second was Satan, some do not. I'm not even going to go into that. It doesn't matter. First one, Jesus. We have an issue. First spirit child. They believe that Jesus, therefore, was then creator. So they say that Jesus is one of many gods. We say that he is the one true God. Isaiah 43, 10. There is only one God. It says, For you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. When Jesus showed up, he said, I am he. He didn't want anyone to be unclear about it. Repeatedly, he claimed divinity. He's the only one that said he came from heaven. Muhammad didn't even say that. Krishna didn't even say that. Buddha never said that. He claimed divinity over and over and over and over. He says that, understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. Listen, he says, before me, there was no God formed. Capital G God. Nor shall there be after me. One God, three persons. Mormonism will tell you that Jesus was created as a spirit child. The Bible defines him as creator. Colossians 1. Oh, let me get to uh, the spirit child. Jesus is a creation who was begotten in heaven as one of God's spirit children. You can read that in Jesus the Christ by James Talmage, who was one of the original quorum of apostles in the Latter-day Saints, page 8. Jesus is the creation who was begotten in heaven as one of God's spirit children. You can see in Mormon doctrine, page 129, it says the first spirit to be born in heaven was Jesus. The Bible disagrees. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, which is one of my favorite passages, I love beginning of Colossians, it says this, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. See, God's invisible, but if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Ever read Genesis 1-1? Ever read Genesis 1? How God made everything and it was epic? Did you know that it wasn't God the Father necessarily making it? It was Jesus making everything that the Father spoke into existence. He said light, and Jesus created light. He said darkness, seasons, mountains, land, creepy things, human. He said when, he, when God spoke, that's why they call Jesus the word of God. When God spoke, Jesus created. Colossians 1.6, it says right here. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit created. It says Jesus for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So it's physical or it's supernatural. God made it all. Jesus made it all. Jesus created angels. It says, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. All things. There's not a planet behind him where he came from to do the creating. That's what they'll say. They'll say, the Mormons will say, look, yes, he created everything. Was he created? Yes, before that. And then he created all things. So something was created before him. No, all things, heaven, earth, natural, supernatural, visible, invisible. Jesus did all the creating. You want to see the handiwork of Jesus? It starts in Genesis 1.1. So he says, and he, is the, and, and he is before all things. There was no planet before him. There was no marriage of a Godhead and a goddess before him. He says he, he was before all things and in him all things consist. Some of you may say, I've never experienced Jesus. Everyone take a breath. Big breath, big breath. Let it out. There's not a single person that can leave here tonight believing you have not experienced Jesus. He allowed and allowed that breath to consist. All things consist. If he flinches, creation breaks and shatters. In him, all things exist. We've all experienced Jesus. It says, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. All that means, firstborn from the dead, is that he was the first one to resurrect. See, some of you think, what about Lazarus, right? He was resuscitated, and what happened to Lazarus later in life? died again. 
Jesus went into the grave, resurrected. First person ever to resurrect. Other people were resuscitated, but went on to die. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus is not created. Jesus is creator. Church of Latter-day Saints will have you believe that his death was insufficient for salvation. Tough one, you got to dig for this one. Journal of Discourses, Volume 3, which was written in 1856, page 247 says, Jesus' sacrifice was not able to cleanse us from all our sins. And in parentheses, murder and repeated adultery are the exceptions. By the way, Jesus came and said, if you even think lustfully about a girl, if you even think lustfully about a guy, you've committed adultery. No one is saved. No one is saved if, ex- if adultery excludes us from that. The truth is that, look, sin entered the world. We all know that. Look, even atheists know that there is something wrong with the world. Agnostics, Buddhists, everyone knows there is just something is not right. Everyone knows we're not perfect. Everyone knows that we're fractured. But what solves that problem is the question. It says in Hebrews 10, 8 through 14, that Jesus is the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. Look, if you ever read the Old Testament and just realized how bloody it was? It says that blood flowed from the temple constantly. Who's glad we don't do that anymore? Can I get anyone excited about living in the New Testament? Thank you, right? Praise Jesus. Every day I don't live in the Old Testament. I've got nothing against bacon, okay? Nothing. Love bacon, right? All that sacrifice was coming to Jesus. All that sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to the fact that the ultimate sacrifice would come. And only Jesus would be the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 8 through 14 says this. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin. You did not desire nor had pleasure in them. God the Father wasn't pleased. He ordained it, but he wasn't pleased with it. He wasn't satisfied with it. He says you had no pleasure in it which are offered according to the law. And then Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Some of you read the Old Testament like that's how they got rid of sin. No, that's how they covered sin. They never atoned for it. They covered sin in the Old Testament with the blood of goats, but it was never an atoning sacrifice. And he says, the priests stand the whole time. This is what would happen. People would bring their, their sin in the form of, of, of the best lamb, the best goat that they had. They would bring it to the altar. They would bring it to the priest. The priest would take it from them. He would walk into the holy of holies. He'd shut the curtain. They would slaughter. He would take that sin before God and the people would just simply leave. And he says, every day, they just, you, you're, you were here, oh man, bro, homie, like, just stop. Like, just, you come back out, you're back, oh my gosh, like, you're still struggling. And just every day, they're back and forth. Some of you are wondering how long I'm going to do this, a couple more times. And just every, like, you're just like, come on, sir, you were just, you were here 15 minutes ago. I don't even know. And just sin, I've done this, I've done that. And they go and they, they take all these sacrifices. He says, just the priests are constantly standing. They're constantly standing. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, check this out, he sat down. That's gangster. (laughs) Jesus is just like, one sacrifice, homie, that's it. Right, I'm just like, and he sat down. And Jesus sat down because it was finished. There's no more walking back. There's no more shuffling sin before the altar. He says, all that sin was crushed on me. Now I'm just going to sit down. He was done. One time for all sins forever. 
He says he sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus says even better, he says, I'm gonna kick my feet up on the backs of those who oppose me. It's epic language. It's gonna make him his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Once. There's a reason that Protestants don't believe this is physically the body of Jesus. When we take communion, it's not physically the blood of Jesus. Why? We don't need to re-sacrifice him on Sunday. We don't. One time, it's a symbol of what he's done, that one time sacrifice. And then Jesus sat down. Everything you brought here tonight, Jesus took to the cross. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. He crushed Jesus. He pushed him into the grave as your sin and then jesus resurrected the firstborn from the dead he ascended and then he sat down because it's over it's over that's why he said it's finished all sufficient atoning sacrifice mormonism teaches a different jesus and they teach a different gospel Gospel just simply means good news. It's a Bible nerd word for good news. And it's news. It's to be announced. It's not opinion to be debated. Though there's great discourse in the church, a great time for apologetics, it's simply news. Like if I show up to you, I'm from Chicago, and say, hey, the Cubs lost. Like, well, no, I think they kind of won. I disagree with your assessment. Dude, they lost. Like, I'm just telling you the facts. You just read the sports the Lakers won, the, the Raiders lost, whatever it is. I'm just announcing it. I disagree. Okay. I'm just telling you what it is. So we've talked about Savior. Now we've got to talk about salvation. A different gospel. Mormonism would have you believe that you are saved by grace. And grace is just simply this, getting what you don't deserve. I walk up to you, give you a hundred bucks, that's grace. Right? You sin against me and I don't do anything back, that's mercy. Not getting what you deserve is mercy. So God has grace and mercy. He gives you what you don't deserve. And he also withholds what we do deserve. Grace and mercy. And so saved by grace. And this is where you've got to have someone come in after the fact and add things. Like Eve added things. Saved by grace after works. So Mormons will say, we believe we're saved by grace. And you take a look at Second Nephi 25, verse 23. It says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ. That sounds good. To be reconciled to God. That sounds like Bible. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Yes! After all we can do. If you stop it, we've been saved by grace. You sound like you're preaching Bible. If Eve had just stopped, said, we're not supposed to eat. And then she went on and said, oh, we can't touch it either. She says, yeah, we're saved by grace. After we've done some things. Saved by grace after works. The Bible would disagree. The true gospel is that we are saved by grace alone. End of story. It says this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And look, could I have done 10 verses for each of these? You better believe it. We're trying to keep it simple, aren't we? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. See, God's going to talk about what he does and then he's going to push everything you do off to the side. By grace, through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. What did you do to receive a gift? Nothing. You just put out your hands. Right? And we even start debating that. They're like, well, like, is this a work? Should I like just take the gift like this? Like, what do I, right? Thanks. Put it on my head and all over my shoulder, right? By grace, you are given a gift that you don't deserve. Not of works. Not of works. Thank goodness. Why? Because lest anyone should boast. Then we simply have an unequal playing field. I haven't sinned as much as you. I'm a Christian. I'm better than you. That's nonsense. 
good and Christian don't go in the same sentence. No such thing. You're just so much, you're just a better Christian than it doesn't even belong before the cross. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. He didn't say non-Christians have fallen short. He didn't say atheists and Mormons have fallen short and the Christians are fine. As long as you're Protestant, go to Calvary Chapel or something like that. None of that. All. Some Christians need to get that knocked out of them, that they're better. Some non-Christians need to get that knocked out of you too, that we are better. We're not. Nor are you. People are like, church is full of hypocrites. I know, you want in? We got room for you. Bunch of dysfunctional, crazy little backstab. I know. (laughs) We got room. None of that. Saved by grace alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. Mormons will have you believe that you're justified by works. Now, justified is simply a legal term. It's a legal term. It says you're either innocent, you're guilty. In Moroni 10, verse 32, it says, Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Sounds good. Deny yourselves of all ungodliness. Okay, we kind of like that. Like, like flee from sin. I kind of see the Bible paralleled. Then it goes on and says this, And if... That's the word. If you deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then, this is an if-then statement. Some of you know logic. You've taken it in school. It's an if-then statement. If, then. Then is not assumed without the if, is it? That's basic. Come on, I even went to Kalu and I understand that, right? It's just... It was even easier to get in when I went too, by the way, right? But I don't pay like $400,000 a year like you guys do now, so... If you deny yourself of all ungodliness, then is his grace sufficient. Brutal. If, then... If you stop sinning, then God's grace will be sufficient for you. You see that? I'll read the rest of it. It says, if you deny yourself of all ungodliness, and I saw the same video, he said, have you done that to the guy? Have you denied yourself of all ungodliness? Well, no, I mean, (laughs) I still sin. So God's grace isn't sufficient, is it? Well, that's not what he means. It's an if-then statement, is it not? If, then. You said, I haven't done the if yet. Therefore, God's grace is not sufficient. It says, then his grace is sufficient for you, that by his grace you may be perfected in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can no wise deny the power of God. Again, that's Moroni 10.32. The Bible disagrees. The true gospel is that you are justified by faith alone. Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Thank goodness. I suck at that. I'm awful at it. By the grace of God, I'm being sanctified in it, but I do it every single day, and so do you. There's like 600 laws in the Old Testament. There's probably 800. I don't know how many in the Bible alone. You break one, it separates you from God for all of eternity. And there's not a single person. Mother Teresa never claimed to be perfect. Muhammad never claimed to be perfect. Buddha, Krishna, Joseph Smith, no one claims to be perfect. Why? Because people will just follow you around. All right, then we'll see doesn't take much past Monday morning. You're clearly not, okay? And it says, knowing that man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall shall be justified. None. God gives you grace to have faith in him, and that's why you're declared innocent. Not after you've done all that you can do. Not if you stop sinning, then will his grace be sufficient. Grace is where it starts. It's not God's response to your getting better. And even in the Christian church, we start to fall into this. Even among Christians, we start to think that we need to be keeping God's favor. 
Look, I need to serve a little bit more. I need to ratchet up my Bible study. I need to pray. Look, if you're in saturated with the Holy Spirit, he's going to generate in you a desire for those things. God will give you the desires of your heart. He will, he will, he will push you and press you and sanctify you into the things of him because he's conforming you more into the image of Christ. So you'll never be sinless by the grace of God. He'll see fit that you sin less. But grace is the starting point, not the response. So even if you're a Christian here tonight, I would challenge you to not think that God could love you a little more if, and you fill in the blank. God will never love you any more or any less than he always has. God will never love you, Christian, non-Christian, if you can hear my voice, hear this. God will never love you any more or any less than he always has. Always. And so we are justified by faith alone. And the promise of the good news for Mormons is that you can become a God for eternity. After all, God the Father himself became a God by following the works, didn't he? By following the law on another planet. The teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 345, says God himself was once as we are now and in an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. We have imagined that God was God from all of eternity. I will refute that idea. And take away the veil so that you may see. Just like Satan. You're going to know things that no one else knows. That God has always been. He's always existed. I'm going to tear that. You're going to know things that other people don't know. I will refute that idea, he says, that God would be for all eternity. President Lorenzo Snow, the fifth LDS president, said, As God once was, man is. As God is, man may become. The promise is that you can become God. And in the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 345 through 347 and 354, it says, After you become a good Mormon, I'm consolidating, after you become a good Mormon, you have the potential of becoming a God. The true gospel disagrees. Isaiah 43.10, we read it earlier. It says, before me there was no God formed. Now the Bible speaks of many gods, does it not? But you notice that they're lowercase g's. They are spiritual beings that accept worship, though they are not God. What's the layman's term for that? It's a demon. It's a demon. The God of Baal. It's a demon of Baal. The God of this, the God of the Bible speaks of it, lowercase g God. says, you better believe it. People worship them as gods, but they don't even get a capital G. Why? Because they're demons and they were created. Jesus created them. And now they accept worship. They accept worship. And it says, before me, no God formed, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. And the promise for us is that we will never be God. But we can be with God for eternity. Philippians 3.20-21 through 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. I can't wait for my new body. 34, I'm already just like begging for a new one. This is ridiculous. I'm going to be stiff when I wake up. See, no one's laughing because you're all young. You'll see. Ten years. A couple more rugby games, a couple more outings, a couple more hikes. You'll see. Says that we're going to get a transformative. It's going to transform this lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Jesus resurrected, did he not? He had a glorified body for 40 days on earth, did he not? Bible says you'll get one of those. You will not be God. But you will get a glorified body. And it still bared resemblance. They knew who Jesus was. His friends recognized him. He still had the scars. There will still be physical remembrances, physical reminders of what we looked like. Some of you think we just float off as a soul. We're just this, we're just this soul with a harp and a cloud. So we're going to have physical bodies in heaven. Physical glorified bodies. We will not be God, but we will get to be with God. 
for those that are under the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice of what Jesus did with your sin, with my sin, every thought, word, and deed we've ever done wrong, he put it on the cross and he allowed himself to be pummeled as your sin. The Bible doesn't say that he looked like your sin or he was a metaphor for your sin or he represented your sin or he was an epic picture of your sin. The Bible says he became your sin and God crushed him as your sin and put him into the grave. And so now all those that by grace, through faith, accept Jesus Christ, that all-sufficient, atoning sacrifice where Jesus just sat down, said, it's done, all the wrong in the world is done, it's finished. It says, we will be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The false gospel is that you can become a God for eternity and it's a, it's a very tasty nugget. And just as Satan weaved his way into the garden and said, you can be like God. Paul says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ for he who comes preaches another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Our Mormon friends believe the same lie that brought sin into this world, the same lie that we believe when we take Jesus off his throne as Lord, King, and Christ in our life, and we say, I'll make the decisions and take it from here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says this, Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. This was God's plan, not ours. Some of us think men invented the cross. Some of us think that humans were the first to conceive the cross. God knew Jesus was headed there the whole time. Before eternity began, he knew that Jesus would hang on the cross for everything you did wrong, even just today, let alone your life over and mine. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, through it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing doesn't mean that we don't evangelize, that we don't talk, that we don't present the truth. But he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, and I just, I just noticed this right now. Joseph Smith said, I refute that idea and we'll take away the veil. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, lowercase g, has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Look, the reality is this, is that Jesus is the one true God. He created you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He has every tear you've ever cried in a bottle, the Bible says. I don't know what you're going through, but Jesus does, and he's broken over it. He didn't want this. We brought this on ourselves. He didn't want this for his kids, but he provided a solution. For those that accept Jesus, you've been saved by grace alone. It has nothing to do with what you need to do before God. He will give you everything you need to believe through grace justified by faith. I should have put faith there. And here's the promise. For those that put their life, their faith, their hope, their desires in Jesus, you will not be God. Just like Adam and Eve did not become God. But for those that put their faith in Jesus, we will spend eternity with him. That's the true gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus,
I went long, but I pray you be glorified in it. I pray that those that are shook by this message of your doing would respond to it. Jesus, that you created all things and you created us and then we rebelled from you, the true God. We ran from you today. Many of us are running from you. Thinking that we need to work our way back to you to find your grace. But Jesus, I pray if anything, those hearts would realize that you've been on their tail the whole time. And if tonight be the night, they simply turn and realize they don't have to get back to you. You've been there the whole time. You will never love us more or any less than you do tonight. Jesus, you've given us what we don't deserve and that's an opportunity to accept you by faith. And I pray that you stir that in this room tonight. Jesus, would you work in the people here And with our heads bowed, the Bible says, he who professes me before man, I will profess before my Father in heaven. Jesus simply says, raise your hand. And this is how we'll do this tonight. If you have not accepted Jesus into your life, I'm gonna give you that opportunity now. It's radical and it's crazy, but to be honest, it's really quite simple. If you want to be reconciled to a holy God, not of your works, but by his grace, through your faith alone. In a moment, I'm going to ask that you simply raise your hand. This is not a work of religion. This is a work of relation. So if you want to be reconciled, if you want to be covered in that old, all atoning sacrifice of Jesus where he simply sat down so that you could sit with him for eternity, would you raise your hand right now? Amen. I see you. Jesus, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you've done all the work and we don't have to. Now we're going to worship you for doing just that. Not of our own accord, but because you deserve it. For your glory, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.